Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm Laura Odato. I'm the Cato Institute's Director for Government Affairs, and today we're going to be witness to a very entertaining presentation, as always, by Pat Michaels. He is Cato's Director of the Center for the Study of Science. He was also a past president of the American Association of State Climatologists and was program chair for the Committee on Applied Climatology of the American Meteorological Society. Pat was also a research professor of environmental sciences at University of Virginia for 30 years. He's the author or editor of six books on climate and its impact, and he was an author of the Climate Paper of the Year awarded by the Association of American Geographers in 2004. Today we're going to be talking about a new project Pat recently did, and we have a few copies for any enterprising individuals that want to come chat with us afterwards. Um, and Pat is getting into detail about the government study and then Pat's response to that. And with that, I will turn things over to Pat. Okay, the title is a little different in this talk than, than it was advertised because I kind of like this representation, um, how the EPA uses, quote, science to take away your stuff and how to stop it. Uh, this, of course, is a talk about the endangerment finding from carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases made by the EPA uh, on December 7th, 2009. But we have to go backwards in time a little bit to understand how we got to where we are. This is Senator Obama on the campaign trail in 2008. If somebody wants to build a new coal-fired power plant, they can, but it will bankrupt them. Electricity rates will necessarily skyrocket. Well, <clears throat> in response to their endangerment finding, the EPA issued regs that a new uh, coal-fired plant can be built as long as it emits the carbon dioxide of a new high-end gas-fired plant, which means that the carbon would have to be sequestered and stored. Carbon sequestration and storage. It used to be buzzwords around here until people realized it was kind of a waste of time and money. Uh, and uh, Obama was uh, very lucky in that natural gas prices, even as he was speaking, began to drop because of the dramatic increase in, in hydro hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. So as a result, our emissions energy-related missions are now down to where they were in 1992, uh, but didn't know that. Let's fast backward to where, how we got where we are. Obama was very, very um, aggressive about pushing the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill, which would limit emissions to 3% uh, below 2005 in 2012. Well, we're below that. We were below that last year because of natural gas. That was not known at the time the bill was passed. 16% below 2020, 83% by 2050. And this is where things got very, very uh, uh, interesting because that number, if I asked anybody here, any staffer, uh, any, anybody who studied this issue, uh, how to get there, well, here's where you're going to be trying to get. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Whoop, there we go. This, this is the Waxman, these are the Waxman-Markey guidelines here. Here's 2005. By 2050, which is about 37 and a half years from now, the average American would be allowed the per capita emissions of the average American in 1867. Now, I could I go on television with any one of you and get what we like to call the Cato response, which is, okay, we have to reduce our emissions per capita value to, to what they were in 1867. 
please tell me precisely the technologies that you would use to achieve this uh, and how you would bring these online. And the response on television is usually this one, uh, because they don't know. And then the President Nikato says you're a good guy. So uh, what happened is this became known. The bill was passed on June 26, 2009, and the members wanted to go home for the 4th of July week. And so and there, there was quite a bit of grumping about this thing when they got back home. Now, uh, it was kind of a national grumping, if you will. Here is, whoops, here is the Rasmussen Presidential Approval Index rating. That's strongly, strongly approved minus strongly disapproved. Uh, I'd just like to point out, and, and I know that there are people in this room that look at this thing before they go to the bathroom in the morning, okay? Don't kid yourself, you know who you are. Uh, June 29th. 2009 was the first day that it had three days of the public's knowing cap and trade was passed because it's a three-day running average is what the, what the Rasmussen index is uh, where the approval index goes negative is right here and that date would be <coughs> June 29th 2009 and it was never positive for one day after that until near the election in 2012 so it had political ramifications uh, and here's what happened in November of 2010, worth noting. Cap and trade cost the Democrats control, control of this House. Every close House race was lost by a Democrat who voted for cap and trade. Every close Senate race was won by a Democrat. What's the difference between the House and the Senate in that election cycle? They both voted for health care. Only the House voted for cap and trade. Both the House and the Senate voted for the Affordable Care Act. Only the House voted for cap and trade. And so it went... And the next morning, uh, November 4th or November, November 3rd, 2012, the first question to Mr. Obama was, uh, what, what's going to happen to cap and trade? And he said, his answer was, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Well, by that he meant he was going to work through the Environmental Protection Agency. So here's the history of what's going on with the EPA and climate regulation. Mass v. EPA, a 5-4 decision in 2007, the Supreme Court held that if EPA finds that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases endanger human health and welfare, that it must regulate them under the Clean Air Act of 1990. Now this has been very controversial because the Clean Air Act is really not designed for carbon dioxide emissions, but that was the reading of the act um, that they chose five to four. And so <coughs> um, this occurred during the Bush II administration. You can imagine what was done, i.e. nothing, they just punted until after the election. Uh, and then 90 days after Obama was sworn into office, we had the proposed finding of endangerment in April 2009. <clears throat> and the endangerment finding was made uh, on December 7, 2009. That was the first day of the United Nations Framework Convention Climate uh, a Conference in Copenhagen. That was the conference at which we were supposed to <coughs> craft a document that would, would, would replace the Kyoto Protocol, which itself was a massive failure. So because we were unable to reduce our emissions to what were mandated by Kyoto, we will put in st more stronger emission reductions so we can fail even better. Uh, now, the basis for endangerment is interesting. <clears throat> it's based largely on two documents. For the United States climate specifically, uh, EPA's 2009 endangerment finding is based largely upon, I'm sorry, one document, for US in particular. Uh, that's called Global Climate Change Impacts in the United States. And here 
is global climate change impacts in the United States, whoa, uh, produced by the U.S. Global Change Research Program. The U.S. Global Change Research Program consists of just about everybody, uh, every science head from an agency that's receiving a lot of uh, global change money and uh, all kinds of different related entities. So the problem is when you do science by committee, you know what you're going to get. And when this document came out in its draft form, uh, I wrote a review. And I said, you know, I've, re I've reviewed a lot of these climate compendia in my long career. And this is by far the worst. Uh, I said there was not one paragraph that could, uh, could was, was, uh, had complete information. In fact, you might even take it down to the sentence level. And about 78 single space pages later, uh, my review ended and said, I'm only on page 40, but the comment period is over. Here's my review. So I thought about this and thought about it uh, and realized uh, what's going on on this issue is the linchpin to global warming regulation is the endangerment finding from the EPA. So I developed kind of a long strategy, if you will, on this. First of all, the way it stands now, it really doesn't matter who's president. Um, the president could say, a new president could say, well, I'm, we're not going to regulate carbon dioxide under the EPA. And I guarantee you the Environmental Defense Fund would be in court in five minutes saying, excuse me, the Supreme Court said that if you find it endangers health and welfare, you must do this. Now, possibly there could be an act of Congress that would say this, except it would have to get 60 votes to get out of the Senate, to get to a vote. And I don't think that's going to happen in the foreseeable future. So really, what has to happen is uh, the endangerment finding is continually, uh, uh, <coughs> the regs are continually litigated. Every time a new tranche of regs comes out, somebody's ox is gored, and they go into court. Now, courts are very reluctant to interfere in the science deductions of a technical agency. It's known as Chevron deference. We don't want to overturn Chevron deference, but we do want them, we do want one of these proceedings to have the EPA directed to take a look at all that they missed. So, that's where we are. So on December 12th, uh, 14th, 2012, we produced, released a document. I said, it would be a great idea if we made a document that looked just like it, okay? So it's a mirror image document to the US GCRP report. And the flow and the uh, uh, design are the same. Here's our table of contents. Here's oh. their table of contents about this report, etc. Okay? About this report. And the flow of the paragraphs is the same. So what's quite remarkable is that we could produce something of such volume uh, in response to this particular document. I'd like to talk about some of the things that are in this document. Well, that's the cover of the U.S. GCRP report, Global Climate Change Impacts in the United States. And immediately, when I saw this cover, I started thinking, what a strange cover this is. You see, this is supposed to be global climate change impacts in the United States, and yet 
This is not temperature in the United States. That's global temperature. Why, why that? And furthermore, this is not really a very good de depiction of what causes climate change. So in our cover, uh, we did something, we put in clouds, okay? The original did not have clouds, and the bottom chart is the last 20 years of U.S. temperature history at the time that we did this report. So yes, uh, oh, this is a very finicky. The U.S. GCRP cover shows the U.S., but it contains a plot of global surface temperature. It neglects one of the most important climate parameters, clouds, and it shows, ours shows U.S. annual temperatures as greenhouse gases increase the most. Uh, now, this is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, the largely litigated or talking points in these particular documents are the key points. And so our key points are analogous to their key points. This is the U.S. GCRP report. Number one, global warming is unequivocal and primarily human-induced. Fine. Global war climate change is unequivocal and human activity plays some part in it. There's no doubt that it's warmer. The real question on climate change, by the way, you know, in the summer, all the kids here are taught, it's not the heat, it's the humidity. Well, the real question on climate change is, it's not the heat, it's the sensitivity. The question is, how much temperature change do you get for doubling carbon dioxide? And we'll take a, t take a look at that uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, here as we are here. Um, widespread climate-related impacts are occurring now and expected to increase. Impacts of observed climate change have little national significance. I don't think there's any doubt about that. If you take a look at GDP after Katrina, uh, there might have been a blip of about a quarter of a percent or so, maybe a half a percent for a couple of months. The United States is very resilient to events like that. That was, a disaster. That was, that was the quintessential weather disaster that all young meteorologists and climatologists were taught was going to happen one day, and of course it did. Uh, and so each, each of these are analogous. Crop and livestock production will be increasingly challenged. Look, crop and livestock production will adapt to climate change. Of course it will. And we can talk about why. It's kind of obvious. Uh, and then climate change will interact with many social and environmental stresses. Climate, oh, darn it. Climate change is a minor overlay on U.S. society. And each, each one of these, just like they do, we do put the pages in the text where the correspond, or which corresponds to each of the key points. So, yeah, one of my favorites is the last one. Uh, future climate change and its impacts depend upon choices made today. What a vacuous statement. Science without, uh, or science without quantification is not science. It's philosophy. Uh, policies enacted in the developed world will have little effect on global temperature. That happens to be true. Uh, and um, <clears throat> the main reason for that is the U.S. is rapidly becoming a relatively minor emitter of carbon dioxide. Remember, uh, early at the turn of this century, uh, uh, China emitted about 40 percent of what the United States did on a yearly basis. Now they're about 40 or 50 percent above. That's a phenomenal change, and that's going to continue to happen. So anyway, what's going on? The EPA's uh, endangerment finding has a fat tail, okay? It's based upon suites of climate models like this. Now, uh, what, what, what I mean by a fat tail is the 
probability of a large climate change is not vanishingly small in these models. It could happen, so the precautionary principle dictates that we should try and do something that we ind indeed can't, but that's another subject of another debate. Now, <clears throat> going on, since the publication of this report, have come a spate of studies on the probability distribution of warming and the sensitivities of warming. And I, I assure you that the new U.S. Global Change Program report, which is in draft uh, form right now, has studiously ignored these. Uh, and it, ex it ignored a lot of stuff, though it is really a big, big document. So let's see what's been going on. Uh, here's Hargreaves, uh, four different ways of doing it. This is equilibrium climate sensitivity, blah, 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 ring it all. Ring it all is interesting because the fourth author on ring is Michael Schlesinger from University of Illinois. And Schlesinger uh, is certainly is one of the greenhouse, has been one of the greenhouse firebrands uh, on it. In fact, it's typical, typical the way these papers are written. You know, uh, well, we find the sensitivity is less, blah, 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 blah. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything now. In fact, it means we must do something now. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that nature is telling you the world is not going to end. Anyway, and uh, eh, Schmidt at all, blah, blah, blah. Now, there's one in here that I, I admit, this is an I told you so. At my age, you get to be I told you so. That one, whoa, that was published on December 20th, 2002. Revised 21st Century Temperature Predictions. And it pretty much gave the same range as all of those other studies under different me methodologies. This paper has a little bit of a, uh, an impact. Uh, it was one of the papers that repeatedly was talked about in the so-called climate gate emails. And one of the papers that was used as uh, um, uh, Santer, and, Santer and Manns and Wigley's <laughs> back and forth about how we need to get rid of this editor. Uh, they did things like not just going after his editorship at, <coughs> at climate change, but writing to the president of Auckland University trying to get him fired. Uh, yeah, and then they wrote, and they wrote back something back and forth that <coughs> the University of Wisconsin needs to reopen my PhD dissertation because I made a fatal mistake uh, in my dissertation. And, uh, and I looked and what they said was exactly wrong. I did exactly what they said I was supposed to do. They don't apologize when they just do stuff like that. Would, would, would have been kind of fun if I actually, actually would have got into it because they would have really been embarrassed. Anyway. So now let's talk about the report. Now, this report is designed to engage, okay? And so it's full of sight gags. For example, uh, again, we have the real climate on the cover. Here's the water resources portion of uh, the USGCRP report. Now, last I heard, water comes in three phases. Liquid, uh, gaseous, which is surrounding the glass, um, liquid, which is in the glass, and they forgot to put some ice cubes in there. So we put a cryosphere <laughs> in ours. Uh, now, it gets interesting when you see what has been done on these reports with regard to climate impacts. And I'll, I want to talk about the agriculture section of the two reports uh, for a moment, if I could. Okay, key messages. Many crops show positive responses to, to elevated carbon dioxide and low levels of warming, but higher levels of warming often negatively affect growth and yields. Okay, well, they admit that CO2 
stimulates plant growth, but they say, they say only at low levels of warming, et cetera. Uh, one of my other favorites, weeds, diseases, and insect pests benefit from warming. Okay, we have a longer, we have a longer growing season. One of the, what happens in global warming uh, is that the growing seasons, the, the tails of winter get shorter uh, and summer's tails begin earlier. Um, whether that's so bad, I don't know. By the way, I, may I put together a, a, a may, may, I, may I, it's time for a commercial, okay? <clears throat> Yesterday, an amazing thing happened. The four, five, excuse me, five best, five best computer models in the world all agreed that Washington, D.C. was going to get a major snowstorm. We were kind of on the edge, but they all agreed that we were going to get a major snowstorm. They had two and a quarter inches of water in them on the average, much of that falling as snow and much of it falling very, very, very fast. Now, not only did all the computer models say this, so this was the consensus of meteorological science, I'd like to point out, the great experts in the field, and some of them are here in Washington. I'm going to make a plug for Jason Salmonow, who runs Capital Weather Gang. I taught Jason at UVA, and when he walked into that class, I thought Roy Hobbs of forecasting had just walked in. He, this, he, he was the natural, okay? Bob Ryan, uh, former president of the American Meteorological Society, went on TV at 11 o'clock at night showing each one of those models. You know, you, know, you think I'm making a goofy forecast? Look at all this. Um, Bob Ryan's very, very, very good man. Uh, if Salmonow is the natural, Louis Uccellini, who's the president uh, or the head of the National Weather Service, is God. And Louis is maybe the world's biggest expert on exactly the types of cyclone that were for, was forecast to form uh, on Tuesday night and Wednesday day. Obviously, he thought it was okay, because he would have let it be known if it was not okay. So, just a little lesson. The greatest models in the world, interpreted by the greatest climate science or meteorological science forecasters, arguably one in the world, meaning Uccellini, uh, and experts for here, uh, Sam and I's expertise is mid-Atlantic, and boy, he's got it. Everybody got it wrong. Now, you can take those implications home for yourself and figure out why I digressed into that commercial. So, our agriculture, elevated carbon dioxide increases the productivity and water use efficiency of nearly all plants, okay? We're a little bit more inclusive. And I'd like to show you um, the differences between uh, them and us. This is from the USGCRP report. And just to make sure that you think I'm not making this up, agriculture. See it? Lower right-hand side or lower left-hand side, okay? This is uh, a scarum diagram. It's what I call a scarum diagram. Uh, the, this is the vegetative, uh, that's purple, and reproductive time, re uh, temperature versus photo, I'm sorry, this is, this is vegetative, that's reproductive. Temperature versus net photosynthesis <coughs> for corn and for soybeans. And the idea here is that it will warm up so much that we will get beyond the optimum. You notice corn and soybeans are more sensitive to environmental stress at time of reproduction. This seems to be characteristic uh, across human beings. 
plants and everything in the world. Just kind of get stressed at that point. Uh, now, instead, as a substitute for this graph, we have this, this one. See, in reality, the USGCRP neglects fundamental crop physiology, uh, portrays the growth response as static when uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide increases. In other words, the response of growth to temperature will be the same under elevated carbon dioxide as it would be under background uh, um, carbon dioxide. That's odd, because I want to tell you something. Uh, when you raise the carbon dioxide concentration around a plant, you're taking the plants back to where their DNA grew up. Okay? They grew, they, the angiosperms evolved <coughs> in a much warmer world. And you know, the DNA that we can't find does anything, we call introns, I'll bet a lot of that has, has, is stored stuff that gets activated when things like carbon dioxide and temperature change. And so, uh, in reality, the temperature optimum for photosynthesis increases with carbon dioxide concentration. Yeah. Okay. Here's uh, the, the photosynthetic optimum uh, at uh, background carbon dioxide concentration, about 26 degrees Celsius, leaf surface temperature. Let's take it up to a little under 2,000 parts per million, okay? Uh, and the optimum shifts 11 degrees Celsius. Now, you can't warm at 11, you won't warm at 11 degrees for that change in carbon dioxide. So what it says is the plants have adaptive capability. When the CO2 goes up, their photosynthetic optimum point will be, will be move upwards. How could anyone miss this? Instead, using a static document like that, uh, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So, oh God, this is from the USGCRP report. This is the weeds thing, okay? Here's uh, current CO2 concentration, and here's potential future CO2 at 680 parts per million. What's missing in this picture? Okay, the cover was missing clouds. What's missing in this picture? A crop. We do things like cultivation, you know? And so maybe we ought to use a, a long-standing crop like an Alderica pine and grow it in different concentrations of carbon dioxide for a couple of years and see what you get. Oh, there it is. That's ambient. That's Sherwood did so, by the way. 150 plus 300 and plus 450. Uh, and I noticed in the new USGCRP report, the one that's in draft form, that's 1,200 pages. By the way, they're going to produce another document, a smaller document like that, but it will take a couple years for them to do that. Uh, they have the very same illustration that you just saw. It's like somebody didn't learn that this thing can really get, get, get hammered, and so Sherwood did so is going to be in our new report also. So uh, just to give you an idea, um, in case you think we're cherry-picking the literature, I'm going to read you the fine print. This is percent growth enhancement as a function of atmospheric CO2 enrichment in parts per million above ambient CO2. Okay, fine print. These data representing a wide mix of plant species were derived from 1,087 individual experiments described in 342 peer-reviewed scientific journal articles written by 484 scientists residing in 28 countries. Okay, so now, whoop. I want to now look at an example of regional impacts of climate change. 
And when I first, um, when my first draft of this report was done, first what I would call author-proof draft was done, in September, I gave a talk and I said, I'm going to talk to you about how the government lies on global warming. And somebody jumped down my throat, said, they don't lie. You can't say that. Okay? Well, you be the judge. You be the judge in Alaska. Okay? This is the last illustration in the Alaska section of the USGCRP report. Okay? And it purports to show species moving northward, uh, marine species moving northward. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Yeah, right there. Right at the end of the report. Okay? And uh, you can read the text. It says, air, as air and water temperatures rise, marine species are moving northward affecting fisheries, ecosystems, and coastal communities that depend upon the food source. <coughs> My take home for that is, as, the warm, as it warmed in, in this region, as the sea surface temperature came up, the marine communities moved northward. That's what it says. And it's got a reference here, Meter and Litzau. <coughs> Meter and Litzau, 2007, I believe. So, you know, one of the things that, that government committees ought to remember is that this is a world where people are looking and people are checking and they're looking at the primary citations. So let's see what's in Meter and Litzau. Well, this is from their 2007 paper. A nonlinear accelerating time trend in northward displacement, that's of species, <coughs> unrelated to temperature or any other climate parameter we tested at any lag. That's what they said and you saw what was put in your taxpayer-sponsored report. At any lag, suggests that mechanisms besides climate must be contributing to the distribution shifts in the Bering Sea. The failure of our uh, fishing expedition to explain variability among species underlies the difficulties of this research problem. Now, I said it was a lie. It's a lie. Yeah, how that got through? I don't know. Beats me. Okay. Uh, the Cato report contains a much richer citation index than the USGCRP report. Uh, there were 569 endnotes in the USGCRP report and 932 in the Cato report. And that brings me to the take-home line. The next tranche of EPA regs that comes out, somebody's going to say my ox is gored and go to court. We don't want them. I don't want them to overturn Chevron deference. That would, that would be a pretty bad pretty bad precedent. But if we can get this in front, I would like judge to say have this in hand and this in hand and say, you know, there's a lot in here. You need to go back. You need to go back and answer what's wrong in there. Because if you can't do that, you can't regulate. So that's where we are on this. Um, and it's going to continue to go forward. Now, the really nice thing is they have produced a new draft 1,200-word report, uh, and the comment period ends on April 12th. Um, our, our document used citations through early 2012, and so does their new report. So we pretty much have covered what they have, and we're going to excerpt pieces of this and throw them into the record. So now we will have this document entering into the public record um, by April 
12th, and we'll go forward from there. Uh, now, if you want to download these reports, this is the USGCRP report. Uh, and Laura, are we going to put our PowerPoint images, uh, avail make them available at the Cato site? Okay, you can do that. Uh, and uh, so you don't, you don't have to write this down if you don't want. And you can down, download ours uh, at the Cato uh, addendum report. Now, I'd like to tell you, uh, in conclusion, oh, first of all, let, let's, let's ask how this happened. How do we get to the situation where committee-produced science documents are that bad? And is it just in climate change? It's not. <coughs> okay? I'll give you two examples. Um, recently, well, it, it, how many people in this room, because they're in the know, know that the largest uranium deposit in the United States resides about 175 miles south-southwest of here in Pennsylvania County, Virginia. And it's largely on one person's land, the Coles family estate called Coles Hill in Pennsylvania County. And Walter Coles decided that he wanted to exploit the uranium that was underneath his land. And so he went. <clears throat> he said, I'm going to do this right. He went to the environmental community. He went to the, uh, Piedmont, the Southern Environmental Law Center in Charlottesville. They got together with the Piedmont uh, Environmental Council. And they went up to Mr. Coles and said, Mr. Coles, <coughs> we're going to have the National Research Council produce a report on uranium mining in Virginia. And I looked at Walt Coles and I said, Walt, that was a mistake. He said, yes, it was. Because you see, you can, you can create committees that will give you what you want. And there are, there are, there's dissent on these committees. On the Uranium Committee, there were two dissenters. Uh, all you have to do is find out who the dissenters are, pick up the phone and call and say, is there anything wrong with this report? And the phone doesn't stop for a couple of hours. So, uh, by the way, the, what the flaw in that report, this was amazing. The flaw in that report was that they basically made the argument that because it rains in Virginia, you can't mine uranium. Uh, <clears throat> and oddly enough, the dog that I have in that hunt was the primary climate citation was me. So I, I kind of took off after that one. Okay, that's the second example. Obviously isolated examples. How about the largest copper deposit in North America? You know where that is? It's in about 150 miles west of Anchorage, Alaska, in land that's zoned for mining. Yet the EPA produced a committee-based document in May trying to preempt the, the principles which are Northern Dynasty in Vancouver and Anglo-American in London from exploiting what they have. And it's again a committee-produced document which makes up a mining scenario that doesn't even exist. So that's what's going on in this town. We, we, can, we, can, we can use, quote, science if we get who we want to produce what we want. And that's quite unfortunate. So public choice affects this, too. I mean, the fact of the matter is, in the climate science community, if you go around saying this is probably an overblown problem and the sensitivity is set too high, you're not going to be rewarded very much. I can tell you that. So it becomes a problem. Anything that costs a lot of taxpayer money must be a problem, whether it is or it is not, and it will continue whether it is or what it is not. This is the public choice influence on science, and it selects for agenda-driven science. Uh, that's used to take away your stuff. The systematic biases inherent in this group think can be exploited. Yes, that's right. You find out who the dissenters are. Usually there's a lot of science that's missing, and 
you go forward and you fill in the holes, many of which are very large. And with regard to uranium I would, and, and, and many uh, other regulatory areas, I will say climate-based arguments are the last refuge of regulatory scoundrels. To take away people's property, to take away their stuff because it rains somewhere is absurd. Uh, to regulate carbon dioxide emissions uh, uh, because of ecosystem changes that are not attributed to climate change and other things is absurd, but that's where we are headed on this issue.